Wherever you may be listening, whether it's Beijing or Quito or Cairo, we all probably have one big cultural reference in common. Disney. The memories run deep, don't they? Mine are listening to a cassette tape of The Lion King and asking my father, what does it mean to be prepared? Or studiously counting the number of times I'd seen Pocahontas and it was 11, which is too many times to have seen Pocahontas. I asked listeners on Instagram and the memories were strong for you too. One got to Euro Disney in Paris and was shocked that Pluto, the dog, spoke French. Another would skip school once a year on a rainy day. Her mother would drive her to Disneyland and they'd have the whole place to themselves. One of her favorite memories. There were also a lot of traumatic memories. Like one listener went running to Winnie the Pooh for his autograph and she looked at his hands and saw that his costume didn't have fingers and she flipped out. Another got lost and put in a room full of lost children and she was convinced like that's it. I'm going to be adopted by another family. I'm an orphan. Some listeners' families were anti-Disney because of their older, racist, and anti-Semitic imagery, and we'll talk more about that later. But in all of our childhood memories, Disney is omnipresent. This is FT Weekend, the podcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. We're dedicating this episode to the massive, complicated economic and cultural force that is Disney. It's shaped American culture for almost 100 years, and in turn, the culture of probably every country around the world. So today, we're exploring what happens when a company with that much influence just keeps growing. Over the last 20 years, Disney has grown. A lot. It bought franchises, famously the Star Wars Empire, Lucasfilms, and the superhero universe, Marvel. It acquired media companies like the TV broadcasters ABC and ESPN and the streaming platform Hulu. It ate up production companies like Pixar and 20th Century Fox. And then, two years ago, it rolled out its own new streaming platform, Disney+. Plus. I think it's really hard to grasp what their power actually is, and I think it operates on different levels. It operates on just having a ton of money, and but at the same time, there's just this completely intangible power in terms of culture because we're consuming so much media that is produced by Disney at this point. That's Dr. Sabrina Mittermeier, who studies Disney at the University of Kassel in Germany. She wrote a book about the history of Disney theme parks and has another coming out this year on Disney fandom. A lot of people are also lamenting, probably rightly so, that the majority of like what makes up the box office of cinema right now is produced by the Walt Disney Company in one way or the other. And it's really pushing out anything else. We're consuming so much media that I think most people aren't even aware of that they're consuming Disney media when they do so. I mean, they own an island in the Caribbean. They own a cruise line. They own several movie studios. The guy who led all this growth, including buying Castaway K in the Bahamas, was a man named Bob Iger. He was Disney's CEO for 15 years and was considered a gifted storyteller who sold this uplifting vision of the brand. He was a charismatic guy and almost universally liked. And in 2020, he finally stepped down. Iger has stayed on as creative director at Disney for the past few years. But as of this month, we are firmly in a new era. Iger is gone. And a new guy, another Bob, has replaced him. His name is Bob Chapek. And Chapek is now at the helm of what Disney will become. So I want you to meet him. Uh, 
This uh, reminds me of being in the French Quarter. A little bit. I think that's the idea. Yeah. Really believed it. Felt felt the magic. He got the lingo down now. (laughs) That's my colleague, Chris Grimes. He's the FT's Los Angeles correspondent. And he's sitting there in the Disneyland version of New Orleans with Bob Chapek. Chris spent a few days with Chapek recently to hear his vision for Disney, which was kind of a big deal because Chapek rarely talks to journalists. Right. So... This was an interesting moment for him and for Disney. Uh, Bob Chapek had never given a big interview before since he became CEO in February of 2020. Mm. Um, He's been a pandemic CEO. And he's worked at Disney for almost 30 years, but has been a pretty low-key character. So Chris and our colleague Anna Nicolaou, who's our U.S. media correspondent, went deep into the world of Disney for a magazine cover story called Have You Met the New Guy, Bob? I've put it in the show notes. So, Chris, what did you do together in Disneyland? <laughs> like, what was it like? How long did you spend with him? Did you go on rides with him? Did he show you around? Yes, this was a, an interesting experience for me. I'd never been to Disneyland. <laughs> and uh, I spent a lot of time there. In fact, Uh, I spent the night there uh, at one of their places and uh, got up early the next day for the photo shoot and for the interview. We had something to eat and then we went and watched the uh, the nightly fireworks. And he said, so, you know, what do you want to ride? What have you you done before? (laughs) I told him that my son liked the Cars movies when... Uh, when he was a little boy, and he said, oh, well, did you ride the Cars ride? And I thought, well, no, I mean, it seems like it's for little kids. He said, no, the top speed on that thing is 55 miles an hour. Let's go do it. So you did it? Yeah, so uh, he's a really tall, he's a big guy. Mm. I don't know how, he's over six feet tall. And he's a reserved Midwestern guy, but, you know, you put him in a uh, theme park ride and he starts whooping and hollering and stuff, (laughs) which is kind of fun. And you could tell uh, he was pretty comfortable in that environment. Bob Chapek is comfortable at Disneyland because it's kind of where he came from. His last job was chairman of Parks and Experiences at Disney. And before that, he was doing distribution, like managing the company's film content. He made a lot of safe bets, like a direct-to-video film called Lion King One and a Half, which was not good, but it paid off and it made the company a lot of money. So that's Chapek's reputation. He knows the parks and the fans, and he knows how to make money. The direct-to-video experience he has, it seems old-fashioned, but it matters now again because we're all streaming. Chapek took over just days before COVID hit, and Disney had to close its theme parks and cruise ships. They were hemorrhaging money. The only way to make it back was streaming. So Chapek put releasing Disney Plus into overdrive. Can we talk quickly about sort of Disney in the context of the streaming wars and like where it sits? Because as I think about it, it sort of feels stuck in two worlds. Like it's this old classic company. The employees love it very earnestly. They still do these cruise lines and their offices have like kind of this 90s cruise ship vibe. But then it's up against a place like Netflix, which is much cooler and more like more like a tech company. Disney has a very, very strong brand and obviously a lot of loyalists and people who are really obsessive about Marvel or Pixar or whatever it might be. I think that that reputation both helped and has hurt it in this whole thing. 
it helped initially because there was this kind of base of people willing to pay $6 a month for all of this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. They were kind of guaranteed. It was very low-hanging fruit. So right out the gate, Disney gets tons of subscribers. It's without a doubt been far more successful than any other media company and going up against Netflix. Mm-hmm. But I think the cracks have kind of emerged lately where, okay, after this first leg of the super fans, who is going to sign up for Disney? Like, if you're a person in their 30s without children, there's mm. nothing for me on Disney+. Plus. So Disney's strategy has been to build off franchises because they know a Marvel film will do well. But that makes it less nimble than a place like Netflix, who takes risks on totally new content, like Squid Game, its surprise hit TV show. Uh, Anna, I don't know if you agree with this, but one of the things that people have been talking about when they compare Netflix and Disney is they point to Squid Game. So Netflix is commissioning so many people to do such a wide range of shows. Yeah. From cooking shows to something like Squid Game. So the question is, can Disney ever have a happy accident like Squid Game uh, as long as it's, you know, sticking to its big franchises. You know, you've got The Mandalorian was an extension of the Star Wars franchise. Once that becomes a hit, it can also become a ride at a theme park and that, mm. that sort of thing. But the argument goes, you're not going to come up with a squid game as long as you're trying to extend your franchises. Disney's also starting to come up against Hollywood. When creatives like actors and directors work with Netflix, they know they're going straight to video. But when they work with Disney, they're often looking for a box office hit. I think one of the things that was really interesting that I didn't expect to find out when we reported this is the big issue is that Disney, and Chapek said this to me, is they've got a foot in the past and a foot in the future. So you've got a company full of people whose whole lives revolved around either getting something on television or getting something in as many movie theaters as they could. And so Chapek is trying to manage these two uh, different imperatives. One is build Disney Plus based on the content that these people produce But if you're a movie maker, you want your film on the big screen. If it goes straight to Disney+, Plus, then you are not happy. You may have heard of a very public fight Disney had recently with the actress Scarlett Johansson. Last July, Disney released Black Widow. It was a superhero film based on Marvel Comics, and it was sure to make money, and Johansson was their star. She'd signed on for a box office release a few years before, assuming she'd make a big bonus if it did well. But Disney changed course in the pandemic. It decided to release the film both on Disney Plus and at theaters at the same time, which was great for digital growth on their platform, but bad for her bonus. So she sued Disney for breach of her contract. It was kind of a mess, and it did not make Chapek look great. Can you tell me briefly about Scarlett Johansson suing Disney and like what it represents bigger picture? I want to cover this in real time. Do you want to, do you want <laughs> yeah, to take sure. that one? Thanks. This is a very exciting afternoon. Uh, <laughs> I think there's this tension that's going to carry on for the coming years of the old guard versus the future, essentially. And so then you have all these actors who are stuck in this old era, which isn't even that old. It's like 
two or three years ago that they were making these deals and they would get paid based on the box office. It was basically a much more merit-based system because if the movie did really well, you would get more money. So it's like everyone succeeded together, everyone failed together. Mm -hmm. I mean, Netflix essentially created this different system where they pay people up front and that's it. You're not Mm -hmm. getting anything else after that. But for a big movie star like Scarlett Johansson, she's counting on tens of millions of dollars to be made from this Marvel movie doing, you know, a billion dollars at the box office. Johansson and Disney settled in September. And Chapek was pretty adamant in his interview with Chris that just making Hollywood happy is not his job. Look what's happened in the last two years. It's been profound change in consumer behavior. That's yeah, not going back. Not just the way they're watching, but the way they're shopping and the way they're eating. Everything. And, yeah. Everything. I mean, there's a lot of changes because of the pandemic. By the way, in my opinion, the pandemic only accelerated what was going to happen anyway. With regards to streaming or? Yeah, well, more. certainly with re- yeah. regard to streaming. Um, and, you know, we, we love theatrical exhibition, we love linear television. But it's not about what we love. It's about what the consumer loves. And so they will be our guide. They will be our North Star. Chapek isn't known as the lovable politician that Iger was. He's not cozying up to stars. He's an operational Midwestern guy. And his main job is to double his subscribers in the next two years. Chris, the narrative seems to be that Bob Iger was this sort of like hotshot. <laughs> and then Bob Chapek is this kind of fuddy-duddy. And, and I wonder if that was the experience that you had of him, character-wise. Um, Bob Chapek is a guy who, so he started off in home video, like selling DVDs and things like that. And he came up with a strategy that, you know, made a lot of money. And it wasn't sexy or glamorous or necessarily impressive to people in Hollywood. But he hit his numbers and he made money for shareholders. You know, he's not a natural schmoozer. So he's not, he's just not Mr. Hollywood. Yeah. You know a lot of CEOs that Chris, like, does that matter? Um, so Disney does have a, a lot of businesses. And I guess the question is, how important is it for Bob Chapek and Disney to get along well with uh, talent agents and Mm -hmm. people like that. How important is that for Disney's bottom line? That's the way he sees it. Right. He's not there to be anybody's friend. The big picture problem here is that measuring the success of streaming at this stage is kind of complicated. We still don't know how to count it. So it's hard to know what matters most. Yeah, I think the only real measure of success we can take at this point is whether a show is canceled or not. So Netflix has sort of been self-reporting some select viewership numbers, but they've been kind of widely critical. They're not, you know, professional audited things. At least they haven't been until very recently. It'll be, you know, how many households watched the first two minutes of a movie, and then they'll count that as a view. Right. You have in your piece, and uh, it seems to be part of this, like, public discourse, that people aren't going to want to spend money on all of these different streaming services forever and that like something's going to happen or there has to be consolidation. Is that true? Like, what do you think is going to happen with streaming? Like, how are we going to watch everything? And I know no one knows, but in like five years or 10 years. 
it's interesting. They people said, "Is this the model?" I don't know if this is the model. Is this <laughs> how everything's going to look in five years? We don't know. Have where different studios have their own streaming services. This may be a bridge to getting someplace else. Mm. The only thing that we really know is right now it's an arms race. They are spending so much to produce new content. It should be great for consumers. I mean, I was feeling overwhelmed with choice already, and now <laughs> Disney's going to spend thirty billion, and you know they're spending tens of billions of dollars next year to make new content. Yeah, uh, to f- fill you know what is believed to be insatiable demand for content on streaming services. And again, maybe a dumb question, but are they getting enough from our subscriptions to do that? No. Okay. For answer. <laughs> I think we're still in this experimental phase and it's definitely not sustainable what's happening where everyone's, you know, doubling their budget on making TV and movies. But I think it's it's too early to see. I mean, none of the big companies have yet said, "Oh, I've failed. I have to figure something else out." Yeah. Um, they're all still in the middle of trying to make it happen, right? Right. And it, uh, I mean, I covered tech in the 1990s, and it's not a bubble like that. It's not that kind of bubble, a stock market bubble or anything, but it does feel like that kind of uh, land grab kind of mm. uh, moment. So we're at the beginning of that, and uh, in a few years, we'll probably see how it's going to end. So what's Disney's plan? Netflix is playing a volume game. HBO is putting out excellent content for adults like Succession and Insecure. And Disney, remember, Disney also has another constriction, children. I think Chapek also faces a question of how far consumers are willing to let that Disney brand stretch. Right. You know, I mean, HBO has been known for years for having pretty racy content and so Mm -hmm. forth. Will the Disney core be okay with that being on Disney Plus? Right. It may be necessary to grow the audience, right, or grow the subscription base, but, you know, is that a problem? Absolutely right. There's this question of how wide is the Disney brand itself? Do you ruin it by making it too broad? Should it be specific and should it be this kind of wholesome Mickey Mouse family thing? Right. I, I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. Can I just ask one more quick question? Is Bob Chapek doing well, like, over the past couple of years? Does he seem to be succeeding? Well, again, he's a pandemic CEO, so it's a tough thing to answer. Yeah. I noticed one of the Wall Street analysts is lowering the estimates for Disney for next year based in large part on the content costs, which are higher than they thought, and the fact that the old-fashioned TV networks it turns out we're, we're contributing more money than they had thought. Mm. <laughs> so so it, that, that makes his, his dilemma even harder, right? Yeah, that's part of what I was kind of saying about Iger's biggest strength was he was a storyteller. And he basically crafted this narrative that ended up working for not only Disney, but all of these companies, which is that we're just going to lose money for a while, but it's worth it because then we're going to be part of the future and we have to do this. And I think that narrative was enough for the stock market for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And just recently, they're sort of rethinking that. 
Okay, well, I'm so excited to keep following your reporting and see what happens. This is very dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Lila. Disney was founded 99 years ago, and its early animations are very much a reflection of the time's prejudices. A lot of them portray people of color, especially black people, very offensively. Dumbo, Fantasia, The Jungle Book. This catchy song, Zippity Doo you probably know it, we all know it. It comes from an early classic from the 1940s called Song of the South, which was set on a plantation. And the film was so racist that Disney hasn't allowed it to be screened since the early 2000s. Disney isn't just stuck in two worlds when it comes to its business model. It's also stuck when it comes to culture. Their overall goal always is to appeal to everyone, but that's completely impossible. <laughs> right. Um, as much as you like to say that it's right. a small world, after all, it's actually not. <laughs> that's Dr. Mittermeier again, the Disney academic. She's been watching how the company is handling its image very closely. And so it's really, really hard to like do right by everyone. Uh, but that's what they're always trying. And what the outcome of it often is that they don't do right by anyone. Disney's catching up pretty slowly on how it depicts gender and race and identity. And that's been a barrier for some consumers. Meanwhile, for others, those changes are happening too fast. Many would actually prefer that Disney not change at all. They don't want to alienate more conservative people, but they also want to bring in more progressive people. They want to meet people somewhere in the middle that doesn't really exist. The company has made a lot of changes, but it's still pretty cautious about what it will do and what it won't do. That film, Song of the South, that it disappeared in the early 2000s, it kept the plot line of it and its Disney World ride, Splash Mountain, all the way up until 2018. Disney removed racist depictions of African people in its Jungle Cruise ride just six months ago. Disney Plus now includes racism warnings for those troubling early cartoons. And in 2020, it publicly supported the Black Lives Matter movement, which was seen as a big step for the company, but was not very unique in the corporate world. But then obviously, sort of predictably, there was a backlash. There was a big op-ed in the Orlando Sentinel where a guy was like, well, Disney is getting too woke. And, you know, it's horrible and they're ruining my childhood. The op-ed was very popular. And now we're watching Disney walk this tightrope of reckoning with problematic content over nearly 100 years and trying not to be accused of being too woke. It's interesting. It feels sort of like an identity crisis, like... Disney needs to be wholesome and kid-friendly and have cruises and theme parks and appeal to middle America. And it also needs to uh, show up for the time it exists and now and be more progressive. And also it needs to compete against Netflix and HBO and like on the streaming side, be this cool modern tech company. The question of whether it can be all of those things is interesting. Yeah, and I think it's always all of those things at the same time. It just really matters, like, what you're currently looking at and which (laughs) audience it is produced for. Like, they have some of the best queer representation in this animated show I have still haven't seen, but that exists on Disney+, Plus, you know? And it's the same company that still doesn't want to say the word gay on a mainstream, like, motion picture. And I don't know, I think they're always everywhere with everything and they take bigger risks with things that they know will only be seen by a very small audience. But the bigger question for us may be how comfortable we are being simultaneously Disney fans and Disney critics. 
In the thoughts listeners sent me on Disney, many of you held two feelings at once. You were grateful for a bit of wholesomeness in a complicated world, some simplicity, a connection to our childhood selves. But you were also cautious of too much nostalgia for a past that never was. And let's face it, being behind on race or on politics is not cool, and Disney is competing with cool. So if the bottom line is that you'll subscribe to Disney's platforms despite its problems, Disney wins. And if not, if it can't successfully be all things to all people, then maybe there's only so much bigger it can grow. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast. Next week, the renowned British artist Tracy Emin will discuss her legacy and we'll have the great FT wine critic, Jancis Robinson. If you have thoughts on the show, I would love to hear them. You can contact me in a few ways. By email, we're at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. You can find those sorts of questions like, what's your hot take on Disney? Things that feed into the show on my Instagram. If you want to read the FT, I have a great deal specifically for listeners of the show. We have half off a digital subscription, and there's also a great offer for FT Weekend in print, which comes every Saturday. In the U.S., it's $20 for three months. That's at ft.com slash weekend podcast. That link and links to everything mentioned today are all in the show notes. If you like the show, we'd be very grateful for a review on Apple Podcasts or if you shared it with a few friends who like podcasts, that really helps support us. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and this is my talented team. Katya Kumkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith and Josh Gabbert-Doyen are our assistant producers with additional help from George Drake Jr. Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley, Manuela Saragosa, and Tofer Forges are our executive producers, and we have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. I hope you all had a very happy new year. It's so nice to be back, and we will find each other again next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.